What's fascinating is that since Trump was elected, the IRGC Navy has stopped harassing U.S. ships in the Fifth Fleet in the Persian Gulf. So the Iranians recognize the risk that Trump is an unpredictable, dangerous character. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Abu Dhabi today, where I'm pleased to welcome two new guests to the table. Gary Seymour is the Executive Director for Research at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Kennedy School for Government at Harvard University. Randa Slim is the Director of the Track 2 Dialogues Initiative at the Middle East Institute and is an Adjunct Research Fellow at the New America Foundation. And we're also joined by FP's Executive Editor for the Web, Ben Pauker. We'll be kicking off something called Peace Game Abu Dhabi here shortly, which is an event partnership with the UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Harvard University. Twice a year, sometimes more, we convene leaders in national security policy, international affairs, academia, media, and business to game out how to bring seemingly intractable conflicts to peaceful solution. The idea was people do war games. We thought, why not do peace games? And we've been doing this for a number of years. They've been very interesting and very successful. Through simulation exercises and role-playing, these peace games give us a chance to address the challenges of conflict resolution and peace building with the same creativity and focus that's been traditionally focused to war fighting. But, you know, one of the things that we're going to cover here at this peace game is how the changes in Washington are likely to have an impact on this region of the world. And let me start with you, Gary. You know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting and I suspect is going to be a sub-theme is that whatever anybody may think of the administration in Washington, and there are people who observe the administration closely who may conclude that it's in some degree of disarray, that there is, in fact, nonstop chaos, uh, and it's almost nearly entirely dysfunctional. And you have people on you know both sides of the aisle now in Washington really worried about where things are going. But strangely, we come here to the Middle East, and we come to a part of the world where conflict is the norm, and where the people I've met here in the course of the past couple of days have gone, you know, we don't know whether Trump's going to last. We don't know whether Trump is sane. We don't like the fact that Trump is Islamophobic. But as far as his policy towards the region goes, two thumbs up. You know, all of a sudden, he doesn't like Iran. He doesn't like ISIS. He's not too hung up on human rights and things like that. He's willing to go in with both feet in a place like Yemen. What's not to like? And if, you know, or if he's got flaws, we're willing to overlook them. Are you hearing the same thing? Absolutely. I think this is the one part of the world where Trump's presidency has been greeted with great enthusiasm for all the reasons you said. Other, other than Mar-a-Lago. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. In Palm Beach, they're very happy to have And the one other thing I would add is this is the region of the world where Obama was most deeply distrusted and disliked. And the fact that uh, Trump is not Obama starts him off with a great honeymoon. And then on top of that, he talks tough about Iran. He's not going to bother people here about democracy and human rights. And uh, he wants to attack ISIS. I think the question will be whether people here... What a guy. (laughs) The question will be whether people get disillusioned. And we'll see after the campaign in both Mosul and Raqqa. I think the concern I have is that Trump, yes, he wants to defeat uh, Islamic State militarily, which, of course, we all do. The question is whether he has any appetite for investing in political settlements afterwards or whether he just wants to kill terrorists and leave. 
Yeah, well, let me let me double check this with Randa. To to a lot of our listeners in the U.S., we have listeners everywhere. We know this because they constantly write in for mugs saying. I'm in Mauritius, and I don't have a mug. Please send us an FP mug. The shipping costs are brutal. They're brutal, but we do it. We do it, we do it because our producer, Maria, loves to send mugs to far-flung places in the world. But in any event, I think many people will be surprised by this fact. Trump doesn't like Washington much. He doesn't hang out there. Whenever he gets a chance, he goes to Florida because he feels more comfortable there. And given what Gary said, do we think there's a chance, you know, Trump may go back and forth between Mar-a-Lago and the Persian Gulf because he's, he's, he's appreciated here? You know, there's a chance, but uh, I think if I add to also to what Gary has said, there are two levels of analysis or two strata of looking at what Trump is and how Trump is perceived in the region. One is the government of the region, and they are very much, you know, happy with what they are seeing coming from Trump, especially after what they have perceived as eight years of mismanagement of the region by the Obama administration. There's a lot of mistrust uh, that has accumulated between the United States and this part of the region because of the mismanagement by Obama's administration. But there is also the people of the region, and I think the people of the region are quite disillusioned with the United States, you know. Uh, they are especially, I'm talking about the young people, uh, you know, uh, this whole aura of the United States of being the champion and the protector of human rights and democracy and civil society. You know, they are realizing that it is, it's a dream, really. You know, you have a, pres- a Republican president who tried to do that and they ended up with the Iraq war. And then you have a, an Obama, pre- a Democratic president who tried to do that and they ended up with ISIS. And so there is this feeling of detachment, I'm saying, from the people of the region toward, toward the United States. And more realization that we need to take care of our own affairs, we need to take care of our own matters. And then how this is going to be, you know, settled and negotiated between the governments and the people of the region is going to be interesting to watch. It doesn't mean that America does not have a role to play, but it's going to be a role of a balancer of emerging Region, regional alliances and interests rather than the old U.S. hegemonic group. Well, that depends on, of course, whether the United States actually knows what it's doing. And Gary, well, I was just going to add, I think the feeling is mutual that in the United States, ordinary yes. people are just sick and tired of the Middle East, yes. squabbling and yes. hostility toward yes. the U.S. and strange you know, feuds that nobody understands. Yes. So I think that sort of detachment in part is reflected in Trump's policy. I mean, Trump's interest in only fighting and not meddling in the internal politics of the region. And many people, I think, share that sense of frustration and futility. We've tried to manage the region. It hasn't worked. Let's just let them kill each other. So, Ben, you know, I get the impression, you know, this is a kind of foreign policy discussion. You know, Gary's associated with Harvard, which is, of course, extremely fancy. And then Randa's multiple think tanks that she's working with. But you're a man of the street. You're like salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth kind of regular guy. And, And, you know, I get the impression from Trump that he kind of reflects that a little bit. He wants to appear strong. He wants to be a success. And don't bother him with the details. Oh, and, sure. And that's kind of, he's aligned with the American people, right? I mean, I think we're all looking to see if there's any consistency from Trump's policies. And some of the things we've seen right off the bat uh, are concerning, right? He's made these grandiose statements about wanting to solve the ultimate deal, right? The Israel-Palestine intractable problem. And then you have the immigrant ban, uh, which, you know, as Rhonda says, I think was probably received, if not by the government's 
where we are and in the Gulf region, but by the larger Muslim global community as uh, a real shot across the bow. So, you know, you're 100% right that Trump shows no appetite for consistent engagement in the region. And, and I just wonder to what extent the governments of the region will set their own course or find themselves confounded by contradictory statements. I mean, Trump said during the campaign, we're not going to take any Saudi oil. That's a big deal for the Persian Gulf and for the region. Uh, he's then walked it back. So, uh, But he wants the Iraqi oil. Yes. Well, he's gonna, free. We're gonna take for free. free. For he wants it for free. <laughs> yes, and we're there, we're going to take it. Apparently, uh, Inter international lobby. Dead. You know, sometimes I watch Trump, and I think, if only we were England. If only we had question time. Because I would love somebody to have to stand next to Trump and say, "Okay, please show me Egypt on this map." You know, and he just wouldn't. He wouldn't be able to handle it. So what I'd like to do, you know, we have, you know, usually we've got about half an hour to go, and I, what I'd like to do is explore the kind of things we're going to explore in the peace game, sort of scenarios, taking some of the issues in the region and sort of get our take on where we think these things are going to go, particularly from the perspective of how might they be different under Trump than they were under Obama or Bush, okay? Gary, you are an arms control specialist. I think the right place to begin here is with the Iran deal. We've heard some very, very strong language from Trump about it. There's been some strong language from some of his alt-right advisors, the sort of the SIG group, the Bannon group. And then there's the people who are still referred to as the grown-ups, the Mattis, McMaster crowd, who have a slightly different view, don't blow up the deal, enforce it more efficiently. Where do you think we're going? Well, you know, so far, Trump has done the sensible thing which is to say, we'll abide by the That deal. is a sentence that has never been spoken on this podcast before. <laughs> but, you know, but I think it's a good example of the fact that we shouldn't believe everything Trump says. But very often he says things and his behavior is actually quite different. So in the case of the Iran deal, he vowed to either scrap it or to renegotiate it. In fact, he's done the only option that's available to him because there's no international support for scrapping it or renegotiating it. He's going to live with it for the time being and focus on pushing back in Iran's regional position. And I think Yemen, watch Yemen, I think that will be the area where the U.S. is most likely to get actively engaged in trying to limit Iran's influence. Do you, do you agree with that? Totally. I think uh, if there is one consistency in the Trump administration that we have heard from the different officials, it's about Iran. I think there may be, there is another consistency which is about fighting Daesh and ISIS. But it's definitely about pushing back Iran. And, and I agree with Gary, it's not going to be about renegotiating the Iran deal despite, uh, you know, the early rhetoric of the campaign. It is about confronting Iran and its disruptive behavior in the region. And Iran is, I mean, Yemen is a, compared to Syria, and Iraq, it's a low-cost way of confronting Iran uh, behavior, and it means more to our allies with which we would like to establish better relations going forward, like the Saudi, Saudi Arabia, I like the United Arab Emirates. I, I see, by the way, as I'm looking over your shoulder at Gary here, the way he works, which is he makes an intervention, then he hears you say something, then he thinks of the thing that he really wanted to say. Yes, I know. And then I know. you see know. how that, you know, I know. you I can have see inspired. That. I can see that. I can see that. I'm inspired, I'm inspired by him, and I hope he's inspired by me. So. Yeah. But you know, I, I just wanted to add to what you said, that the reason why Yemen is the most likely battlefield is because the battle is lost in Syria and Iraq. 
the Iranians have such a well-entrenched position, I don't think we're going to be able to push back. Uh, and I, especially I, because I don't think Trump has the appetite. Yeah, I'm not going to go as far as saying the battle is lost. I think I would like to say that there is a new way of confronting Iran and limiting, rolling back its influence in Syria and Iraq than, than has been tried so far. I don't think we have tried enough in the I, I, love, I love listening to foreign policy elites talk because they're so sophisticated. And I'm like from New Jersey, and I like have to translate this into my brain from New Jersey. And, and I listen to this. The, the reason we're not going to go against Iran in Syria and Iraq is because they're on our side. They're actually doing what we want them to do. And the Trump administration was talking tough about Iran. How do you reconcile that? And I think the way you're reconciling it, just find places that you can pick a fight with them. It seems to me Yemen is one. I think Gary uncharacteristically left one out which is coming up with other things we can sanction them on that aren't the deal. Sure, there's the ballistic missile program, there's a handful of other things. I just wonder what the eventual goal is, whether Trump intends to make Iran break the terms of the nuclear deal or to burst down some way. In Yemen, it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure there's any difference we've seen so far than the Obama administration's consistent support for the Saudi and the Emirati action against the Houthis. The first thing we saw was this Navy SEAL raid early in the Trump administration, which, however you look at it, was certainly a little bit of a scandal. Uh, but let's remember, you know, that and then the subsequent drone attack, those were both against Al-Qaeda targets, not the Houthi targets, right? Al-Qaeda is entire, this is a consistent program that we've seen from the U.S. See, this, since 9-11. This is the reason this has no political resonance in the United States. It's really complicated. It, right. And you know, you go, what's a Houthi? And is a Houthi got something to do with an Iranian? And where does this come in with regard to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula? And, what? and, and they're, they're not going to get that far. But on, let's just sort of gaming this out a little bit. Let's just take Yemen for a second. If you make Yemen the place you want to go, and I would say, by the way, there is a difference between the Trump treatment and the Obama treatment, because behind the scenes, the Obama folks were kind of pushing down and saying, we don't like this, and by the way, starvation, and by the way, human rights violations, sure. and so forth. And I, I don't get we'll the We'll still show that, bombs to the Saudis, right, but a I, lot but, of them. Right. No, we, they were sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth. I don't think the Trump team talks to them about human rights at all, and I don't think they're saying pull back. I think they're doubling down. But one of the things that worries me is unintended consequences. And if you look at what's going on, we saw this raid, which Trump, by the way, blamed on the generals and then blamed on Obama, although Susan Rice said this was not approved during the Obama administration. Others have verified that. This was a Trump administration approved raid. It went very badly. If, if something goes badly and somebody connects Iran to it, if a missile hits an American, if a bullet hits an American, if there's a standoff of a shipment of arms to the Houthis that a U.S. destroyer comes in and there's some kind of thing, couldn't that escalate into something problematic? I think so. In fact, what's fascinating is that since Trump was elected, the IRGC Navy has stopped harassing U.S. ships in the Fifth Fleet in the Persian Gulf. So the Iranians recognize the risk that Trump is an unpredictable, dangerous character. And they're being very, very careful. That's I'm, glad, why I'm glad there's a rational actor in this. That's why I think, you know, the, the strategy of the U.S. provoking Iran to renege on the nuclear deal is not going to be very easy because the Iranians are quite clever. They want this deal to stay in place. They need this deal, right? They, they need the deal. They're benefiting from it. 
Uh, and, you know, they want the U.S. to be blamed if the deal collapses. So I think they're going to be willing to absorb a certain amount of additional sanctions, especially if they're not very significant economically. And the missile sanctions that Trump imposed after the last missile test, they're no different than the Obama missile sanctions, which is to say they're against individuals and entities that don't do business in the Isn't, U.S. anyway. Can, can I ask a very cynical question, Rhonda? Maybe you can disabuse me of my conspiracy theory tendencies here, which I get from Steve Bannon um, and the other people who lead our nation now, our leaders. If there was more unrest in this region, wouldn't that push up oil prices? And wouldn't pushing up oil prices be really good for our allies in the Gulf and for, wait, the Russians? And for Iran, too. And for Iran, yeah. Wouldn't that be kind of a win-win for everybody, yes. is to just have things look kind of dodgy here for a while? If you look at it this way, but also I look at it from the perspective of the people of the region, more unrest is more blood, is more death, and it's more instability, and more Daesh version point three point oh and 4.0. So there are, there are limits to how much, you know, we can push. Well, know. there's another, you know, in terms of the people of the region, you, know, you say that one of the things I think about is that they're, Something very interesting has happened here in the UAE because they've been fighting here and they've had serious losses here. They all of a sudden have, you know, and and that hasn't really happened. And and now they build a memorial, they're raising funds for the families. It's become a national cause. And the one thing that's going on here is that the UAE and the Saudis are actually looking after their own interests in a way that hasn't really happened in this part of the world before. And whether you give credit to Obama for that or credit to the UAE and the Saudis or credit to the Iranians for provoking it, it is different, right? It is different. I mean, uh, as I said earlier, I think the region, the governments of the region are are starting to to say themselves and to each other that we better take care of our own affairs because big brother United States that has been protecting us for a while and providing the security umbrella is not going to be there for the long term and it's proving that the American people is also is no longer interested in supporting US policy but I have to say in this regard but I have to say something about Yemen is that eventually I mean yes we can do more in, in increasing the cost of Iranian intervention in Yemen. But really, Iran is not doing much beyond providing cheap Iranian weapons to the world. The Yemeni problem is an internal power competition. It's a way of looking for new power sharing formula. You know, the Houthis of Saada have now arrived to Sana'a, and they have tasted power. And despite all United Nations Security Council resolution, to the contrary, they are not going to go back to Sada. They are going to stay in Sana'a, and they see their weapons as a means of guaranteeing their share of the power. They reminded me very much of Hezbollah in 1982. So there is a regional dimension to the Yemeni conflict, well, and, uh, but there is also a local dimension to the Yemeni conflict. And that's why, despite, I mean, I think one thing that the Obama administration did vis-a-vis the Middle East is push for the political dialogue in Yemen, which was eventually initially started by the GCC and then eventually abrogated by Saleh and the Houthis. But eventually we have to go back to the political dialogue because it's an internal power-sharing conflict that can only be solved by political means. Well, and when you say eternal, of course, it goes back into the Sunni-Shiite divides in the region, and one of the reasons that the Saudis are so concerned is that the Houthis are Shiites and have these ties 
one of the reasons the Iranians are providing the weapons is that they have these ties. And the Saudis are particularly concerned about this being a new flank of exposure. But also, I mean, the way the Iranians look at this, at Yemen, is they look at it through the prism of Yemen plus Syria, Iraq, especially plus Syria. So they would like, and they have been, Iranian officials have been saying for some time, is that in any dialogue we are going to have with Saudis, with the Emiratis, it's going to involve both Syria and Yemen, the future power structure in both Syria and Yemen. I think the Saudis are saying no. I mean, you, Iran, do not have a role to play in our Arab backyard. And so what the Iranians are trying to do is trying to keep the Saudis and the Emiratis bleed in Yemen for as long as possible, because the assumption goes, as long as they are bleeding in Yemen, they have less resources, they have less attention, less focus on countries like Syria and Iraq, which mean much more to Iran than Yemen does. Given given our time here, I want to shift to a couple of the other regional crises here, and I'm going to go in a second to you, Ben, and we're going to start talk a little bit about Israel-Palestine and the Trump era. Then I want to go and talk a little bit about Turkey and the Kurds, and then maybe come back to Iraq and Syria. But just parenthetically here, Gary, because of watching the news, if you are gaming right now as to which state is more likely to produce a crisis confrontation with the United States in the course of the next year, and you had to bet Iran or North Korea, what would you bet? It's a very good question because mm-hmm. they're so different. Yes. I mean, both of them, I think, are quite careful. Neither of them want to have a confrontation with the United States. And so as a consequence, I think it would have to arise out of some incident that was unplanned rather than a deliberate confrontation. Um, I guess probably I would say Iran, only because we have more opportunities for conflict with Iran. And in particular, after the Battle of Mosul, I think you're going to see a very... Uh, strong competition between Washington and Tehran for influence. And if we decide to maintain a security presence in Iraq and try to encourage al-Abadi to reconcile with the Sunnis, that'll bring us in direct confrontation with the Iranians. And one thing Iran knows how to do is kill American soldiers through their Shia proxies in Iraq. They were very good at that throughout the occupation. To me, that's a very likely point of uh, contention. contention Although I have to say, if I were betting on this. I would think that the Trump administration will declare victory in Mosul. They will say, look at how well this is all gone. And look what we did in only two months time. Right, right. right. If only Obama had been as tough as us. And they will then say, it's over to you, Iraqis. Have a nice time, which means it's over to you, Iran. And they will cede Iraq to Iran. They will cede Syria to Russia and Iran. And they will sort of back away from the situation as quickly as they can. That would be my guess. I think that's most likely. I mean, Mattis and McMaster will argue against that. Exactly. And certainly our regional allies, I mean, the Sunni Arab countries will argue against that. But yes, I think you're right. That's why I say in Syria and Iraq, the Iranians have such a well-entrenched position, I don't think we're going to be able to contest it. In Yemen, we can contest it, in part because the Iranians don't care very much. Yemen is just a way to make the Saudis unhappy. They don't, doesn't really serve any strategic no. interest from Tehran's standpoint. So the, all the, everything in this region is connected, and back in 2003 or something like that, when the Houthis started organizing their activism. Their slogan involved death to Israel, death to Zionism. They made that sort of central to what they're doing. 
we don't, you know, the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian thing has seemed a little remote from the headlines in recent years, but we have a very interesting administration in Washington. The president's son-in-law has a long history relationship with Netanyahu, relationship with settlements. The guy that they're going to make ambassador, Friedman, long history with right-wing extremist groups there. The guy who nobody talks about, who's their official negotiator. Uh, for all international negotiations. For all international negotiations. Mexico which means Mexico, China, <laughs> you know, the International Light Bulb Treaty. You know, smart what, guy. You know, no, he's yeah, he's going to be very busy. Mm. But he's also got ties. Sure. There are a bunch to of the people. Uh, to there the are more pro-right-wing Israeli people in the U.S. government now than at any time in my memory. Is that true or false? No, it certainly seems to be the case. I mean, the Trump administration has already signaled that they, you know, there was that sort of slip of the tongue, if that's what it was, from Trump saying that he did not, no longer supported the two-state solution. But, you know, it is... It's yeah, Trump thinks the two-state solution is about New York and Connecticut. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and never the twain shall meet. Right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it has been a while since Israel and the intractable conflict there has seemed to be the catalyst for violence across the region. It's almost a, a sort of nostalgia that we look back, right? But, you know, Israeli politics under Netanyahu have been consistently aggressive and expansionist, uh, and yet the tumult of the Arab Spring, of the war in Syria, of coups in Turkey have taken the focus off of Israel-Palestine, and I wonder the extent to which it still is a sort of a call in, in the mosques and on the Arab street and to what extent it actually brings people in the Muslim world together. But I'm not sure that the Trump administration, beyond their statements that they want to see a solution, is really wants to wade into that. You know, this is generally the kind of thing that administrations have done in the latter, you know, in the second term, when flush from all sorts of successes, they feel like they can finally attain peace. But... I don't know, Gary. I mean, I would say even if the Trump administration was interested, it's impossible. You just do not have governments in Israel and Palestine that are prepared to make peace on the basis of a two-state solution. We just got through eight years of Obama, who made a genuine effort, right, especially under Kerry, to bring about a solution and got nowhere. Why would Trump be able to do anything better. Well, so I think that we're heading toward a one state and we're heading toward another intifada at some point. Look, in terms of the, you just, Ben, you talked about what's the meaning of this uh, conflict now for the people of the region. I think it still has emotional resonance, emotional baggage, but there are so many other plights and so many other conflicts that have the same emotional now resonance and baggage vis-a-vis -vis the people of the region. For example, when they look at the Syrian children being gassed by Assad battle bombs, you know, this now meets equally to people of the region as what happens to Palestinian children. So I think you have, in a way, uh, people here are overwhelmed by pain. They are overwhelmed by the intractability of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but also they are overwhelmed by these crises that have been taking place in the region since 2011, from Egypt to Syria to so, Iraq so, but, to Bahrain to whatever. But you know, our job is scenarios here, right? So yes. let's, let's posit this scenario based on what all three of you have said. And that is, in order to have a solution, a solution 
there is only a two-state solution. There is no one-state solution. Right. You know, one state produces intractable conflict forever. So the two, the, in order to have a two-state solution, since the Israelis have the upper hand, they have to give something up. The Israelis don't want to give anything up. And this administration shows no inclination to put pressure on them to give anything up. In order for there to be a two-state solution, the U.S. and the rest of the world actually have to support the Palestinians and the claims of the Palestinians. This administration shows no appetite to support the claims of the Palestinians, and the Palestinians have no leadership nor a clear plan to get where they're going. And so it seems highly likely and by the way, we put Jared Kushner in charge of this, who, frankly, I'm surprised has been in charge of anything other than his checkbook, um, you know, for most of his, you know, blessed existence um, on this earth, and certainly doesn't know anything about foreign policy, diplomacy, or, or dealing with these kind of problems, which also makes it unlikely. So if you take all those factors together, this, this the most likely scenario for Israel and the Palestinians is inertia. It's more of the same. Yeah. It's more of the same. And maybe there is a third intifada. Maybe. I mean, eventually maybe. there'll be another maybe. intifada maybe. when it happens. But I, I, I don't see the making of it right now. I mean, the, right division, the division inside the Palestinian yeah. camp are such that... I, I mean, it's just it's like, you know, sooner or later yeah. there'll be another war with Hamas. There'll be another war with Hezbollah. Yes. We just don't know yes. That's, yes. That, frankly, yes. is a scenario that Bibi Netanyahu doesn't mind. The one, as Jeffrey Goldberg always points out to me, that he minds, is the one where the Palestinians march into the street peacefully and say, give us the vote. Yes. And yes. and that's the one that he's, you know, at that moment, he's got an existential problem. Either oh, you're a democracy or oh, you're a Jewish state. And, and you can't be both. And I don't think it's going to happen in the, in the short term. I, I think the more likely scenario is a war with Hezbollah. I think Israel is getting to a point where Hezbollah's military arsenal, where the fears of Hezbollah, you know, along with Iran establishing a foothold in the Golan Heights, I think there is, they are getting to that point of mutual deterrence regime that has existed on the Lebanese but the Syrian... border is going to be, uh, is no longer to be of interest or of value to them. I mean, but the Syrian war in, in at some level has been good for Israel. It has distracted Hezbollah and other governments that could yes. be the champion of yes. the Palestinian cause. Yes. You know, every so often, every so months, we see some major explosion or some major strike against Hezbollah and the movement of weapons. So it, it, it sort of behooved Israel. You know, you don't see any movement from Egypt or any of the major powers of the region to support the Palestinian cause and to try and bring some consensus towards a peace deal or towards, you know, going out in the streets. Look, but the, number, the Israeli concern is that a, a you know, political settlement in Syria will entrench Iran's position there. Right. Well, and I think and, they're and, right to be concerned because well, that's what's going No, no, I think, I think you could very easily see a scenario where, as a result of inattention or lack of appetite, that within a couple of years, Iran controlled effectively everything to the borders of Jordan. Iraq... Uh, Syria and via Hezbollah, Lebanon, and that Israel is going to feel a lot of heat yeah. as a result of that. And, and, and frankly, the one area where you could see conflict erupt here that we haven't talked about is Lebanon, right? Yes. Where, yes. you know, there, there are rockets, yes. uh, there's Hezbollah, there's a lot of tension. And there seems to be sometimes appetite from the Israelis to really go in and do something. At this point, there's nobody in Lebanon to really in terms of Lebanese political parties, who either has the will or has the power, military power, to confront Hezbollah inside Lebanon. And so I think eventually the only way that, that we are going to see uh, or 
we might see some kind of weakening of Hezbollah is if there is a confrontation between Israel and Hezbollah that cost Hezbollah lives, uh, you know, a good part of its military arsenal. But also, I think such a war will also be costly to Israel as well. And it depends on whether Israel can sustain this kind of onslaught by Hezbollah missiles for a long time. Okay, so let me, let me I want to go into lightning round now. We've got about seven to ten minutes to go. Ben, what's Russia's play in Syria? I think Russia's play is the continuance of a beachhead in the Middle East for its hard power and soft power. It is, you know, the stability of the Assad regime and the continuance of government there. Uh, and it's also sticking a finger in the, you know, the eye of the United States and, and Western nations and say, look, we can still affect the course of events. Agree? Well, in fact, the Russians have been successful. Sure. I mean, their military intervention saved Assad. And they're now in a position to orchestrate a peace settlement. I think their military intervention combined with their electoral intervention in the United States may have helped decide. Um, you know, there were few beneficiaries of this election. And by the way, I don't think Obama's record on this is so great either. You know, Obama decided he was going to live with Assad too and not confront him as he should. But by getting Trump in there, Assad has more job security than Trump does right now. But also, Syria is not unified anymore. Syria now is divided into different zones where we have different warlords are ruling it. So the ability of Assad or betting on Assad as delivering state institution and maintaining state institution, I think, has to be questioned. I really think Russia will be interested, if given the opportunity under the right conditions, to work with the United States in a transactional way on finding some kind of a settlement in Syria. I don't see it happening in the short term, to even to the medium term. I think the best we can hope is maybe the Astana process uh, with some cooperation with the Americans to lead to some ceasefire, sustainable de-escalation of the conflict situation and create conditions to enable uh, decentralization, local governing structures to take, you know, to rule the, the parts that are under the control. Uh, but Syria as we know it, Syria as Russia knows it, as a unified state under the control of the Assad family is gone. Syria is now divided into different zones of influence and it's going to be up to Russia and Iran and other and Turkey to, you know, fight it out amongst each other about who's going to be ruling what. I, I mean, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Yemen are all gone. And nobody has and nobody has the power to put or the interest or the willingness to put them back together again. So we're going to be living in a Middle East where you have de facto partition yes. of those four yes. states. Yes, totally agree with But de, de facto totally. right, par partition or disintegration. Uh, partition implies that people have actually drawn the lines and the and I think they may be accidents of nature. In the remaining couple of minutes, I want you each to limit your answers to one minute. I'm gonna say a place you tell me what you think the scenario is. I'm going to start with you, Rhonda. Turkey. <laughs> Turkey. I think Turkey is going to continue its play in Syria. Turkey uh, will have to come to some kind of arrangements with the American over the Kurdish uh, issue. Uh, Turkey eventually will have, under certain conditions, have to restart its peace process uh, with the Kurds. Can I do Turkey? Because I just came back from Istanbul. Uh, two things. First, I was surprised to hear from my Turkish friends that they are not, 
They think the outcome of the, of the referendum in April is very much up in the air, and that Erdogan, in their view, now this may be wishful thinking because these are not Erdogan supporters, but they think there's a real chance Erdogan will lose the referendum for the new constitution. You're a Gulenist. You're a Gulenist. We're sending you to jail. Second thing, second thing I came away with is the Turks are absolutely furious at CENTCOM for proposing to provide heavy weapons to the, to, the Kurds. to the Kurdish Syrians. And Trump is going to have to make a real decision here. Either he puts off the campaign to capture Raqqa for months, maybe even a year, in order to get other the Free Syrian Army backed by the Turks in position, or he's going to really piss off the Turks by providing heavy weapons to the YPD. Right. And, and by the way, it depends on what how many victories he's had and what his leverage is, because there's a lot of people, particularly in the U.S. military, who really would like to help the Kurds. And frankly, if we, I may editorialize, we should help the Kurds. Well, from a purely military standpoint, that's the best way to proceed. Well, also, which Kurds? Sure. Which Kurds? The Syrian Kurds. Syrian Kurds. Yes. Well, but I, I think Kurds. independent Kurdistan is a, a both an inevitability and a morally correct outcome. But we, we can come back to that. Ben, again, these are minute-long answers. Egypt. I think Egypt continues apace, right? The Trump has a mean, That's Trump, a great scenario. Look, Trump has evinced Con- a lot of support for Sisi. He's one of the few leaders that he probably knows by name, because he probably thinks it's Sisi, and that's one of his favorite words. Um, but, you know, look, the repression there will continue. I think what might be interesting is the designation. The, the, there's this... There are two bills currently in Congress, one in the House and one in the Senate, that are calling for the designation of the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist, as a foreign terrorist organization, which much of the Middle East already considers, uh, except for, I think, Qatar is one of the only countries that doesn't. Yeah, but since they fund the Muslim Brotherhood and they're like the sponsor, so, so why, would they, why would they support that? But, you know, I, look, Egypt has its own domestic problems. It's got a security situation in Sinai. But I think it, uh, you know, has a, a deal for security with Israel. And Sisi has to, you know, double down on his own political life. Okay, we've only got two minutes left. If either of you disagree with that, we could dive in. But, Gary, Afghanistan. Well, talk about continuing the peace. I mean, it's the unending war, right? So without us being there to prop up Kabul, the government eventually collapses. So I think we're stuck there unless, you know, Trump is prepared to pull the plug, which means that we'll go back to a Taliban-dominated Afghanistan. I mean, I hear that he's going to put in a few more thousand troops. Nothing significant, nothing to turn the tide, but... It's just enough to keep the government from collapsing. Okay, so, Randy, I'm going to give you the last word here. Here's the picture of the region that we've just described. Uh, taking, picking up where Gary made the point earlier, and you agreed with it, Libya is gone, Syria is gone, Iraq as we know it is gone, Yemen, Kurt, Yemen is gone, Kurdistan is Maybe. in play yes. in terms of stability, Iran is gaining influence, Russia is gaining influence, the Taliban's going to get back Afghanistan. This is dark, David. This is just what we've been saying. I'm just sort of following it. Good time for autocrats, good time for CC. Very little progress on the intractable problems of the region, whether it's Sunni Shiite, the spread of terrorism, or the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, have I missed something? Yes, you have missed this demographic re-engineering on sectarian basis and ethnic basis that's taking place in the region. That's going to create generational traumas for a long time, for many decades to come, and that's going to 
create uh, fresh recruits for uh, groups like Hezbollah on one hand or like ISIS, Daesh or other uh, non-state armed actors. The other factor also that you have missed is these non-state armed actors, be it Hezbollah in Lebanon, be it uh, you know the virulent form, uh, more virulent form like ISIS and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and its uh, affiliates, or be it you know Sunni militias, uh, Assyrian militias in Iraq. These are not going anywhere. They are staying with us. They are reflective of the state of chaos, the fragility of the state system that you have talked about. And by their mere existence, they are going to perpetuate the state of chaos and state of fragility that is giving rise to this myriad forms of conflicts that have now been being waged in the region. I think that's a very good place to end the discussion. I, I think that there are layers of tumult here. There is a quest for legitimacy here that pits non-state actors and state actors. There is an uncertainty about old institutions uh, and an uncertainty about who will drive the choices that might affect the creation of new institutions. And there is, while there is some embrace of the new U.S. role in the region, there are also some real uh, concerns about how that role may have unintended Consequences. I might add, just as a, as a kind of a footnote to this, that in my conversations here, I've talked to a number of people from throughout the region who are friends of the United States, who are educated in the United States, who worked in the United States, who may have gone to graduate school in the United States, who have family in the United States, who have said to me, I don't think I'm going to the United States, mm-hmm. who have said that the refugee um, ban, which is going to be a temporary refugee ban reinstated uh, this week, and the, 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 essentially the Muslim ban, as touted and, and pushed for by the Trump administration, makes them uncomfortable visiting a country with which they have great ties, and that can only be a damaging thing to the U.S. Well, this is fun. This is the first podcast that we've done from outside the United States. Uh, Gary and Rhonda and Ben, it was, uh, I think, a lively discussion. I think we covered a lot of ground. I thank you for it. Everybody out there, keep listening. We are growing very rapidly. We're right around 75,000 subscribers now. Get your friends. You know, prove to me that you've gotten five new listeners to listen to this thing. Definitely there's a mug in it for you. I know that's what you're really looking for. Maria is wincing because she knows all the emails that are going to come in as a result of that. But go on, give it a shot. We love sending those things out there. Uh, We love your support. We look forward to being with you again really soon. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.